0: Amen. Well, if you would, please turn with me and your copy of the Word of God to Luke's Gospel in chapter 2, and we're going to read the first 21 verses to the praise of God. This is the Word of God. Please take heed how you hear. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea. those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. When they saw it, they made known the saying, that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. At the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. One of the most basic questions you or I can ask when we turn to the Bible is, what does this book or what does this passage teach us about God? As we said in our Christmas devotional earlier in the week, Christmas is an event peculiarly designed to teach you about God. No one has seen God at any time, John says in John chapter 1. But they literally, in the Greek, it says, the only begotten God. It's a beautiful phrase. The only begotten God who dwells in the bosom of the Father he has explained him. He has literally exegeted him, is the Greek word. Like a preacher unpacking a Bible verse. The coming of Jesus into this world exegetes, opens up, and explains the character and the being of God. What do we learn then about God at Christmas time? Basic question. There are several things. First of all, I want you to see the God of Christmas is the God who moves nations at his will. You see that there in the opening verses of chapter 2. There are two men in this verse. One is Caesar Augustus and one is Jesus. Two beings. One is a man, a great man the greatest man perhaps alive on earth, in human terms at least, in human estimation, a great man. And the other being in this passage is God, God the Son, incarnate in our nature. Muhammad will tell you God is great, but only Christmas will tell you that God is also willing to be small and weak. And vulnerable, to reach down and to reach out to the last, the lost, and the least. It's interesting. Caesar here in this passage, Caesar Augustus, the name drips with supposed deity. Augustus is the, the Latin word for majesty. And Caesar Augustus was, was a great king, a mover and a shaker. He conquered Anthony and Cleopatra came to the throne, brought balance to the force, if you like. He brought balance to the empire. Before um, he came to the the throne of Rome, um, the Roman Empire was torn by disruption, uncertainty. There was pillage. There was slaughter, near anarchy, and the constant threat of the whole empire unraveling and disintegrating. But, But Augustus was a man of great Civil and logistical genius, and he kind of wrapped it all together and brought in an era of peace called the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome, that actually made it possible for the gospel to spread out. If it hadn't been for Augustus, the apostles wouldn't have been safe to travel north, south, east, and west um, through uh, Asia Minor and Greece and so forth and so on. And so Augustus was an undeniably great. Man. And he was called Caesar the Majestic One. And with his reign, um, the Romans began to deify their Caesars. Uh, And that became a tradition, of course. You had to worship them by by throwing incense onto the the altar just a pinch every year to prove your citizenship. But um, Augustus was the first one, he was called the Son of God on some of the inscriptions. And he's also called the Savior of the whole world. So, you've got two, if you like, Messiah figures in uh, this verse. You've got Augustus, the mighty ruler, who's putting the world right And the world's looking to Him for salvation. He's promising salvation. And you see that happening even today where we're looking perhaps for better leadership in America at every level as as our empire kind of crumbles a little bit, looks a bit tattered around the edges. And many Americans think if we could just have the right president... Maybe Reagan again, if you're from that stripe, or Clinton again, from the other stripe. Maybe then we could get the world back in order again, right? I don't know. And, uh, and people are looking to Augustus, and he's delivering. He's bringing peace to the world and a measure of prosperity to Rome. He's the savior of the whole world, and, and he seems to be in control, and he's flexing his muscles. He issues this decree, and the whole world jumps into order. Notice all the world. Rome didn't own all the world, but they like to think they did. That all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. This mighty man flexing his muscles, and the world jumps to attention. And you can imagine Joseph and Mary, they're not best pleased. Mary's now eight and a half months pregnant. And they've got, to, they've got to walk 80 miles, 80 miles. Like imagine that, ladies, you're eight and a half months pregnant, maybe in the back of a donkey, all right, and um, she's got to go 80 miles to Joseph's home place to be registered. And she's probably lamenting, why'd, the, why'd that stupid man have to move me? I, I could be much happier having my baby at home in Nazareth, right? But no, she's got to walk. Or ride in the back of a donkey. Bumpy, hard roads, cold nights. Several days at least, on the road, pregnant. You can imagine it. Why? Because behind the scenes Augustus, gus for all of his gussiness, isn't the one really in control, right? Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. That's the real because. Why did Joseph have to go back to Bethlehem? It wasn't because of Augustus. It was because Bethlehem was David's home place. And behind the scenes, behind um, the machinations uh, of this big man on earth, Augustus, Caesar, there was the kind, quiet providence of God. How silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. Turn back in your Bibles, if you would, to Micah 5. Verse two, and actually, I'm going to read this. If you excuse me a second, from um, the, the New American Standard, because it just grabs the Hebrew a little better. Micah five two. But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. The ESV takes the edge off that, back to ancient days, but the word actually is eternity in the Hebrew. 700 years before... um, Jesus is born, Micah prophesied, that one day one from the line of David would be born. But he'd also be born from the line of eternity. It's incredible. Who can this be? Son of God, Son of Man. And behind the scenes, behind the the logistical genius of Augustus, there's another genius at work moving this young family to just the right place at just the right time. And that's why when Joseph opens up his iPhone and puts iMaps Bethlehem, it's a long way, (laughs) and she doesn't deliver on the road, The baby waits to fulfill prophecy. What kind of God come to Christmas time? The kind of God who moves the nation at His will. They're like a drop in the bucket before Him. He does according to His will in heaven and on earth and in the seas and deeps. None can stay His hand. Scarcely have the kings been planted. Scarcely has their stock taken root in the earth. He blows on them and they wither away. You've got a big king on earth and this little god in the stable being born as a baby. But he's bigger than all the world, and he's moving the the events of history to his plan. And that's true right now in this world. God's arm hasn't become arthritic and decrepit with age. Time writes no furrows on the brow of the immortal. He's still moving history. The pieces together. Working all things, Paul says, into an an administration, an economy... And uh, the, uh, the word "economy," Achomenos" in the Greek is the administration of a household. The whole world is like a house, and God is moving, like woman buying groceries and, and vacuuming the carpets, all, all of the economy of a household. God is working everything in heaven and on earth and under the Earth, into an economy suitable for the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in heaven and on earth in Christ. That means all of the events of your life, the good and the bad and the ugly, your victories, your successes, your defeats, even your sins are being woven together by the the tender grip of omnipotence to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. That should not encourage you to sin, but once you have sinned, once you've made a right royal mess of it, as we all have at one time or another— Maybe even this week for some of us. And God comes and says, even this is being woven together. The Republican Party, the Democratic Party, Prince Charles, the defender of the faiths. He likes to think he isn't a defender of the faiths. God is weaving it all together into a moment when Christ shall come, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. That's the first thing. The second thing about this God, and it's an amazing thing, is that his presence brings a strange mixture of fear and joy. Let's look at the passage again. Verse eight, and in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord, the wittiness of God's presence, appeared to them. And it wasn't, it wasn't that the angels brought that glory. It wasn't that they were shining with it, though they were, right? This is the, this is the Shekinah glory that was in the temple and that departed in 586 B.C. and never, departed, never returned again when the glory departed. Ezekiel prophesied that. That pillar by fire by night and the cloud by day was never seen or felt again in the temple precincts. It's gone, 500 years, and suddenly here, the glory of the Lord didn't shine from the angels. It shone. God has come back, as it were, to Israel. And the angels are there. And they were filled with great fear. presence brings fear. That's incredible. We like to think that God's presence doesn't bring fear anymore. You go into Barnes & Noble or Amazon, wherever you buy your books, and there's there's an exhaustive sacred sacred selection where you can talk to about the worship of angels and tarot cards and everything else. And here's the thing. The one assumption behind all of that literature is that the sacred is friendly toward us. And you can interact with it on your terms, according to your schedule, and for your pleasure, and to fulfill your own ends. Remember the child reading the, the um, uh, Aries, Sagittarius, what, what do you call that? You call it the horoscope. Thank you. My brain's crashing this morning. The horoscope in the, in the, in the paper, I'm trying to think, okay, and I would think, okay, if bath, how can I avoid some of this stuff? How can I make sure this happens, right? I'm, I'm not reading the horoscope to kind of worship God better. I'm, um, I'm reading it to try and make my life better. And people try to interact with the angels and even demons and, and Ouija boards and other things to interact with the sacred on their terms and for their own ends and for their benefit. That's a colossal miscalculation. The presence of the sacred is not um, at peace with this world. God's default posture is one of war with this world by nature. Every intent of the thoughts of our heart is only evil continually. Look at the news. Does this world look like a place that's at, at um, peace with God? The murder and the butchery and the the sex trafficking and the rapes and child abuse and all kinds of fraud and ungodliness. This world is careening out of control as men raise their fist and more than their fist, their middle finger at heaven and say, we will not serve you. And the consequence of it is felt everywhere. And God's presence The Bible says God is angry with the wicked every day, and he's right to be. The angels worship him for it. Holy art thou, O Lord God Almighty. Ascribe to our God the rock. His work is perfect. All of his ways are just. He's a God of faithfulness without injustice. Righteous and upright is he. He's a God who will not allow evil to go unchallenged. And we see echoes of that in our own heart. We, we are incensed in a soccer game when someone cheats and gets away with it or does a foul in the penalty box and there's not a penalty kick rewarded for it. Or when we, we watch a murder mystery, we, we watch it waiting to see the bad man locked up. The whole season goes by as we watch these shows waiting for the for the murder to be found and locked up. We like things being tidied up and finished. I, was, when I went back to Northern Ireland recently, one of my friends, Tim Work, he was that um, obsessive-compulsive guy who would um, get into his bed at nighttime. He would make his bed like the British soldiers, all perfectly, you know, tucked in. And he would get in without disturbing the sheets. It was like a snake. He would insert himself into the, into the bed. In the morning, he'd kind of come out again. And the, it wouldn't be—you be, could still bounce the penny off the bed. It was amazing. It was, the sheets didn't, he didn't move an inch all night. Just lay there still. And we would drive him crazy by moving. He'd have everything in his room. It would be perfect. The, the rubbers and the, the erasers and the, and the pencils and the pens all perfectly put. And he, we, we would just move one of the erasers just a little bit. And he'd walk in. You'd see him get stressed. He'd know something was out of joint. And he'd walk about the room and then he would see it. He'd, he'd move it back again to place. And he'd kind of like, ah, oh, he'd breathe. Well, when he was younger, he was a very, very smart doctor. When he was younger, he was a bit lazy he wouldn't go out of bed in the mornings. And he was also very musical. And his mother would get him out of bed in the mornings by um, going down to the piano. She'd call him, he wouldn't get up. And she, she would, the only way to get him out of bed was to play the scale, Do, Re, Mi, Fa, So, La, Ti. And uh, <laughs> five seconds later, Tim would run downstairs and, Do! Because <laughs> he, couldn't, he couldn't leave the, he couldn't leave the, the scale un, incomplete. And God is like that. God will not allow the, the scale of human evil and human wickedness to go unchallenged and unanswered and, and the score unsettled. And that's just not out there in the world. As Alexander Sochnyskin said, the, the line of human evil, or the, the line of evil, runs through the middle of every human heart. And as God's presence comes down before these shepherds, They feared, literally, a great fear. It's like the sailors in the day of Jonah when they met God, they were frightened. Now, we'll see in a second, they were also told to be joyful, but what you need to realize without the presence of this Saviour, the presence of God would only give you reason to fear. Why? Well, Think about it. We're frightened of lots of things as human beings, things that are dangerous. Imagine you're hanging off the, the crust of the rim of a volcano, and beneath you there's lava bubbling away, 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit, and you feel your fingers slipping. They're sweating. Mine are sweating now, thinking about it. But you realize that that lava would be hostile to my body, Be vaporized almost instantly. That's not so bad. What comes before the vaporization, though, sounds pretty bad, right? So uh, I don't like the idea. And like, because of that, we, we're frightened of heights and sharks, the vacuum of space, tornadoes. And we're frightened of them because they pose a threat to our body for a brief moment. But there's a deeper reason, I think, why we fear these things. Not just because they threaten our body, but they threaten our life. And not just because we fear death, because instinctively every human being knows that beyond death we're appointed to meet God. It's appointed once for a man to die, and after that comes the judgment. And think, if we fear His creatures and the danger they pose, a finite force, a finite threat, a little moment of time. What must it not be like for an unconverted, unsaved, unredeemed sinner to find him or herself in the presence of the, cre- the Creator of all things, whose holiness is limitless, whose refusal to allow evil to go unchallenged knows no bounds. He is a danger in that sense that cannot be contained, that will not be abbreviated. We speak of mortal enemies. He's my mortal enemy, we say. But if you're not in Christ, God is your immortal enemy. And he poses a threat to you that death will not erase. Death will only intensify it if it takes you from this world to the next. Into his immediate presence where the angels hide their faces. Now think about that for a quick second. We need to move on. Christmas dinner's coming. I realize that, but think about it. right, Most of us here in this room aren't great singers. We don't mind singing in the shower. How would you feel if you're singing in the shower? You're belting out, I don't know, Nessun Dorm or something, you know, or, you know, cheers to the elf, whatever. And suddenly you realize that, you know, four or five friends from the church have come to your front door. Or even more likely, maybe you're arguing with your children, and you're, you're, you're shouting at them. They're shouting back at you, and then the doorbell goes ding-dong, and you open the door, and there's that nice couple from church. And you think, oh, no, did they hear me? I think they did. And the annoyance of having an argument with your wife or your children suddenly becomes embarrassing because it becomes public in the presence of other human beings. Now, the problem is, of course, or the good thing, I suppose, is those people are themselves sinners who can probably identify. They've been in that situation too and can somewhat share your embarrassment. Um, But imagine what it's like, the embarrassment of, of, of having all of your sins all of your thoughts, every thought that's ever crossed your mind, every word that's ever come out of your mouth, every, everything you've ever done brought into the presence of God, where there's no place to hide, where the sun would be like a dark spot in the brightness of His glory, and you feel yourself surrounded your holy your, your body will not survive; it returns to the dust from whence it 's created, and your spirit is there a naked spirit in the presence of the Father of all spirits, surrounded his eye piercing you like a like lightning bolt forever his, his holy presence blazing the fires of hell are not made for the devil as some kind of extra thing. The fires of hell actually. It is a metaphor to describe the experience of God's presence without a Savior. It's the, it's the, it's the fiery holiness of God poured out. And the world saying, who can stand before the wrath of God and of the Lamb? And whenever God appears, whenever even the angels appear with His glory shining from their faces, People, human beings, get a little sense of that, a little taste of that. I don't belong in the presence of this God. I'm undone. I'm lost. And that's why they're frightened. And we often take that far too easily. I remember hearing, and my congregation heard this before, but John MacArthur was talking to this televangelist back in the 70s, and the televangelist said, you know, I was shaving. And Jesus appeared in my bathroom, and I'm shaving, and he starts talking to me. And uh, he put his arm around my shoulder, and Jesus talked to me, and he had this word for the congregation from Jesus, and uh, John MacArthur said, Jesus appeared in your bathroom? Yeah. The one whose face shines like the sun, whose voice is like the sound of many waters, whose eyes are a blaze of fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze, when it's made to glow in a furnace, Jesus appeared in your bathroom? Yes. Talked to you? Yes. The one at whose feet John fell like a dead man. Yes. I have one question for you, Sid. Did you stop shaving? And the man realized, whatever happened, whether it was an apparition or something else, or a, a, a lie he made up in his mind, he was uncovered. You don't shave in the presence of Jesus or God, when God appears, there's a sense of I'm in the presence of God, and I can't see Him. And live, the Bible says, it's un, it's uncanny, un, uncontainable, unbearable. And these these shepherds feel it. And then this amazing word from the from then this amazing word from the angel. Fear not. Well, why why shouldn't you fear? there's a reason. For behold, I bring you good news. Without this good news, you see, there's only reason to fear. But this good news changes the reason to fear and turns it into joy. I bring you good news of great joy that, that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord." Saviour has been born. That's wonderful. A saviour has come, and because of that saviour, if you have Jesus, do you realise? If you have Jesus, the worst you can be is saved. That's the worst. It could never get any worse than that for a Christian. They're saved. And if you don't have Jesus, I don't care what you have in this world, the best you can be is lost. Do you have Jesus? A Savior has come. He turns this great fear into great joy and great hope. What kind of God at Christmas time? A God whose presence brings this strange mixture of fear, but also joy. In His presence, and then thirdly, the kind of God who reaches out and reaches down. Did you see? Reaches out. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. All the people. I love that little word, all. It's tiny. But it's as big as the whole world. And it's as long as human history. All. This news, this gospel, this hope, this salvation, this Savior is for all. Which means if he's for all, he's for each one of you in this room. You might say, well, I've tried that. I came to Jesus as a teenager, and I asked him, Lord, save me. And I felt nothing. Nothing happened. There was no kazoom, kabam, and I didn't become a new person. And I think he's abandoned me. There's no hope for me. No. The word all extends for all people, no matter what you've done, all histories, all types of sin, all experiences... If you can hear these words, Jesus says to you, if you come to me, all who come to me, I will by no means cast out. Nobody is excluded from this message unless those who exclude themselves. Come. He's a good news for all people. He reaches out to all. The grace of God, Paul says, has epiphanied, has appeared, bringing salvation into the presence of all people. young, old, male, female, rich, poor, gay, straight, cisgendered, transgendered, the best, the worst, all races, all nations, all people. He reaches out to all, and he reaches down to any with warm, tender mercy. The shepherds, we think of shepherds and cuddly sheep Sheep actually are stupid animals. Ask Jim. But, <laughs> um, but the, the source of a thousand sermon illustrations, thank you, Jim. Um, but the, the sheep, that is. Um, <laughs> always getting lost. Um, but we think of shepherds as kind of like cuddly people, like Jesus, right? Or the ones going to the Beth... Shepherds and in in shepherds... Um, in the days of Christ were like trailer trash. They were the dregs of society, the bottom, the scum on the bottom of society's trash can. In the eyes of the Jews, their work made them hopeless Sabbath breakers. They were perpetually unclean, irreligious, and habitually dishonest. Their testimony was not welcome in a court of law. If you had five shepherds who said this happened and one Pharisee who said didn't happen, the Pharisee's word would be taken. They were the scum of the earth. Sexually immoral, thieves. Scholars tell us in the society's pecking order in the days of Jesus, only lepers were lower than shepherds. And God gave the first annunciation of the gospel. Not in the temple in Jerusalem to the priests, not in the synagogues to the Pharisees, not in the palace to Herod or Pilate. He came down to the last, the lost, the least, to these shepherds and reached out to them with a message of grace and hope and love. And the reason God did that was because He wanted you to know that if there's hope for the shepherds, there's hope for anyone. It'd be like the glory of the Lord appearing in a porn room where this, the porn stars are making their movie, and the sex traffickers in the corner are counting his money. These are people as bad as bad can be, and God's glory appears to them, and God's grace is offered to them. so that if there's hope for them, there'd be hope for any. And his glory, lastly, that's worthy of a response, and we'll end here this morning. The response of seeking. The shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste. They saw it. The amazing thing was when Herod heard in Jerusalem, he didn't go. When the people of Jerusalem heard, they were troubled, Matthew 2 says. They didn't go. The wise men went. Herod didn't go. The shepherds went. The the, the dwellers in Jerusalem didn't go. The shepherds sought. Are you seeking the Lord? Where would you go? What would you do if you were seeking God? Might you turn to this book and read it? Might you call upon God in prayer? Might you come to one of your pastors, one of the elders? Might you come to church and... Ask God to speak to you from His Word. If you want to find God, go where He promises to be found. He can be found anywhere, but you'll get, you won't get a better Christ here than you get on the mountaintop, but you'll get Christ better here or in another church where the gospel is preached better. You do not get a better Christ, but you get Christ better where He promises to be found, where two or three are gathered in my name, in the church, there I am. The response of sharing. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. They told others. They were, weren't a dead end to truth. Have you lost your, your passion for sharing the gospel? When you go about Jerusalem, Greensboro, do you see everybody you meet as lost, saved, buying for heaven or for hell? They're eternal souls, as God, as long as God exists, they will exist in the glory of God, in his love, or the wrath of God in outer darkness. And you have a message to share with them. The response of sharing. The response of treasuring, verse 19, but Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. We think about many things. Boys and girls, for a while, you've been thinking about your presence. What are you going to get? And so forth and so on. And, and um, at the, r- r- around, around the tree this morning, my daughter had a puncture. I had to go and help her, so that the opening of the presents was delayed for some time, and the children were round the tree trying to think whose presents belonged to who, and they were looking and shaking and feeling and wondering. And um, pondering. Do you ever ponder the reason why God became a baby? Think. Dwell. And the response of worshipping. Verse twenty. And the shepherds returned from seeing Jesus, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as they had been told. All, people all think of worship as flatteries. If we tell God how good he is, then he gives us something. No, worship is very different from flattering. Flattering it comes to God hoping to get something. Worshiping comes to God just amazed at who he is lost in wonder, love, and praise. Who He is, what He has done, and what He has said, and we're just caught up with Him. These shepherds were turned into worshipers. Do you know what it is to worship? Have you met the Christ of Christmas? The sad place is, for most people, this first Christmas, there was no place for Jesus. Jesus. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. No place. Why would nobody in Bethlehem give room for Jesus? And the reason, of course, is because at his birth from the very beginning we see this world is instinctively hostile toward him. The last time that word, no place for him in the end, the last time that place word is used in Luke's gospel, at the very end, when Jesus was led out to the place of the skull called Golgotha, where they crucified him between two thieves. It, Luke's, Luke's telling us there's a beautiful picture here of, or a terrible picture here of the world assessment of Jesus and of Christmas. We love the gifts, the lights, the trees, and everything else, but the world's assessment, no place for Him in the inn, no place for Him in the heart, and where we'll find a place for Him is on the cross. Rejection. And yet in that very rejection, Jesus is saving us from rejection, saving us from the abandonment he experienced as he suffers in our place and for our sins. And maybe you're here, maybe this is the first time you've come, you're a Christmas, Easter Christian, and you've come to church, and maybe your parents have dragged you, and you think, oh, when's he going to finish? I'm finishing now, it's the bottom of the hour. When's he going to finish? Like, the <laughs> anyway, I'll not go there, too much time. But <laughs> finish, okay? And you think, how could. maybe you say a cynic i just can't. how can jesus die in my place for my sins and the answer is not because god can do it every wants and god can take your sins and give them to jesus just by a magic woof, of the of the of the of the wand no there's a deeper magic than that than c.s. lewis would say and it's found in the idea of covenantal union like a husband and a wife you join together and you share the same name, the same bank account. You become one flesh in reality. It's a covenantal union. It, it's why we're all going to die. Because you and I, the, the real problem we have is not that we sin ourselves. That's bad enough and it makes the problem worse. But that we are in Adam and we're born into this world on the way to the grave because of our union with Adam. He's our representative. And that union makes Adam's death our death and his sinful nature our sinful nature. In Adam's fall sinned we all, the New England primer said. I think that doesn't sound very good. It's not. It's a terrible thing to be connected to Adam. Well, in the gospel, what God did, He took, He takes his people out of Adam and puts them into Jesus. And the same logic that fills the graveyard in Adam empties the graveyard because of Christ, because all of Christ's righteousness becomes ours, and all of our sins become His. and he dies the death, we ought to have died. And we live the life He ought to have lived under the favor of God and are at peace with God. As the angels sang, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among literally the men of His good pleasure. How can God look at you and me and think, good pleasure? Because He doesn't just look at you and me. He looks at you and me, and he sees Jesus. I had coffee recently with one of Sonny's grandchildren, one of my elder's grandchildren. He doesn't come to our church. I've only met him once or twice in my life, but I met this young lad, and I looked at him, you know, and I saw Sonny, and I loved him. It's as if I've always loved him, because I've loved Sonny for so long. I looked at this son, his grandson, and I saw Sonny in him, and I loved him. When Jesus when God looks at you Christian he sees Jesus and he loves you and on the cross when God looked at Jesus he saw only you he saw only your sin and he cursed him and that's the reason for christmas that Christ might go to the cross and you might go to heaven. It's the logic of the seesaw. One end always goes down and the other up. What kind of a God, an amazing God, who wraps himself up in our nature and covers himself up with our sin so that God can not only demand atonement for sin, but he provides that atonement and he becomes that atonement so that Jesus might do what his name says, save his people from their sins. Their own particular ways of sinning, Christ saves them all from it all in time and forever. And if you believe that, you have the foundation. You might have nothing else, but you have the foundation of a Merry Christmas. And if you've never believed that, I want to invite you this morning to come and put your faith in Jesus. He's a Savior. The best you can be with Him is safe, and the worst you can be without Him is lost. No, the best you can be without Him is lost. Let's pray. Father, thank you, O God, for the gospel. We pray this morning, O Lord Jesus, that you would come and meet with this congregation and show us something of Jesus, the one who went to our place on the cross, that we might go to his place in the Father's house. We offer these prayers in Jesus' name. Amen.